And so Paul will say, listen, you suffer with him. You can know for certain that there's greater future blessings. You'll reign with him. You have the Holy Spirit today as a pledge, as a down payment. That is only a foretaste of what is yet to come. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 8 of our study of the Book of Romans, and as we pick up today in Part 1 of a message entitled, More Than Conquerors, we find the Apostle Paul in verse 32 making a double reference that his first century readers would have been able to understand. That is, he drew a parallel between God sacrificing his son on the cross to Israel's patriarch Abraham sacrificing his son up on Mount Moriah. The account of Abraham and Isaac gives us a picture of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Isaac was not some little boy who was helpless and overpowered. He was a strapping, strong young man who could have easily tossed off Abraham, his elderly dad. But like Christ, he said, no one will take my life. I will give it. And in Genesis 22, he allowed himself to willingly be placed on that altar. And no doubt he believed with Abraham in bedrock faith that God would do what he said that after he was slaughtered and then burnt to ashes, a burnt offering, that God would raise out of the ashes his son because he was the son of promise and from his loins would come a whole nation who would ultimately bring Messiah and all the nations would be blessed. And of course, you know the text, God stops him and Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. 22.14, call the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And Abraham in 22.8, and as it's recounted here in this verse, uses a future tense to describe what God is going to do. Because if you remember that day, a lamb was not provided. A ram was provided. But Abraham effectively prophesies of the coming Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And we studied when we were in Romans for that ridge called Mount Moriah. There's a section of that ridge today right outside the city of Jerusalem that has been called in Aramaic, a slang term, because of the rock formation. It looks like a skull, and they call it Golgotha. Now, we often refer to the place as Calvary. No, when you go to other parts of the world, you mention Calvary, most people don't know what you're talking about. That is something larger than the American church and the English church. It comes from a Latin term, Calvarius, for skull. But the place is called Golgotha. And it's there on Golgotha, right outside this place called Mount Moriah, that the Lord Jesus dies and bleeds. In fact, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven and God recounts all that Messiah did, that we will discover that the exact same very spot that Abraham offered Isaac was the place that Jesus was crucified. But when I read Romans 8.32, it says, God did not spare His own Son, 
but delivered him up for us all is the exact same wording that every first century Christian would have read from the book of Genesis, and they knew exactly what he was saying. Now, we know from Scripture that Abel was the first prophet. We know that because Jesus tells us that. You don't know that from the Old Testament, and that's very significant. That's another sermon. But Abraham is the very first named prophet in the Scripture. And Abraham, in every detail, both by picture and by the things he says, prophesies the delivering up of God's only son. And so when he says, if he didn't spare his own son, and that he's going to give us all things, what all kinds of things are he, is he speaking about? Well, Peter uses the same term in 2 Peter 1.3. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And of course, if you know verses 28 to 30, the immediate context, the all things that he's referring to is our salvation that begins with God's calling and ends with God glorifying us. God will escort you home someday to the place he's prepared for you. It's as good as done if you have a true and real and genuine conversion because no one can take away our salvation. And because God is more powerful than anyone else, and because God keeps his word, and if God can do the greater thing, he will certainly finish the lesser thing. And so Paul will say in Ephesians 1, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now follow me this morning. For God not to do what he says he's going to do in verses 29 and 30, what he has already positionally done according to verses 29 and 30, would be to create great chaos within the Trinity. Because in these verses in Ephesians, God tells us when you hear the message of truth, the gospel, and you believe it, at that moment you are given God the Holy Spirit. He is implanted in your life. You are sealed with Him for the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? When Jesus comes back and He completes your salvation. When your justification and sanctification intersect in glorification and your salvation is completed. How long are we sealed? Do not grieve, He'll say in the same letter. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We are sealed for the day of redemption. God is not going to undo that seal. And for God to take away of our salvation, it would not only require a failure on the part of God the Father not to do what he promised, it would also require a failure on the part of God the Holy Spirit not to keep us sealed to the day of redemption, but it would also require a failure on the part of God the Son, because Jesus promised this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who does the Father give? Those whom he foreknew in eternity past. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is the will of him, the Father who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me, that of all, A-double-L, of all he has given me, I lose none. I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus gives an irrefutable promise for everyone who will come to him. He says, I, when I came to earth from heaven, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single one, without exception, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will absolutely certainly be raised up on the last day. And for Jesus not to raise up on the last day, someone who has come to him would be to disobey the Father's will. And he didn't come to disobey the Father's will, but to do the Father's will. To say, think your way through this now, to say that you can lose your salvation. Number one, you're calling Jesus a liar because he said that you cannot lose it. And not only are you calling him a liar, you're calling him a sinner because he came to obey the Father's will. And the Father's will is that every single one without exception who believes will be raised up on the last day. And not only are you calling him a sinner and a liar, you're calling him weak because you are saying that he cannot do what he promised to do. Now, most people who deny the doctrine of eternal security really haven't thought their way through that. But in essence, that is what they are saying. They are calling the Lord Jesus a liar, a sinner, and weak when they deny the eternal security of the believer. But Jesus Christ gave an unequivocal promise here. And to say that you can lose salvation is to create total disunity within the Godhead. The Son would have to change the Father's eternal will. The Father would have to get the Holy Spirit to unseal us. And the Son would have to stop interceding for us. And He would have to undo the Father's will to raise us up that which He came to fulfill. So follow Paul's argument here in 832. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with him freely give us all things? And the answer is, yes, he will. And the cross is God's guarantee is that he will give us those things. Now, there's no effective opposition. There is no potential deprivation. Notice the third declaration. There is no viable accusation. No viable accusation against the child of God. He asks here in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You could paraphrase it. Who is qualified to bring a charge against the child of God? Who can possibly accuse the true believer? Now, if this question stood all alone without the phrase that follows it, you could raise a number of accusations. You could say, well, our conscience accuses us sometimes. And indeed it does. The devil accuses us. In fact, the Bible teaches in Revelation 12, 10, that he is habitually and continually accusing children of God before the throne of God. And certainly there are many people who could point the finger at, at us. But why are there none, no accusations that will stand? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And Paul quickly adds, God is the one who justifies the supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe is the one who justifies. There's never going to come a case to God's throne where they say, whoa, did you see what Carl Brogy did? Oh, I didn't know he was going to do that. We better take his name out of the book of life. No, God has declared us righteous. He has justified us. Listen, God, when he chose you, did everything he needed to do to secure you for all of eternity. God will not unchoose you. Does that bother you? If it does, then you are appalled at the grace of God Almighty. And yet, there are people 
who will say to me, well, can a Christian lose their salvation by some terrible sin they commit? People who say that to me, they really don't understand their salvation. They haven't grown very much in the grace of God because they have a warped view of how salvation begins. They think that somehow it began with them, but it didn't. We saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead men can't respond on their own. No one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. And so God in his initiative begins to draw people to himself. And so people who think, well, is there something I can do? They think very often that salvation began with them. And then you'll meet some people. They'll call me on the Bible line. They'll say, okay, pastor, I know there's not some sin I could do that would cause me to lose my salvation. But what if I choose to return the gift of salvation? And again, these people do not really see that God is the one who justifies. We love him because he first loved us. But they will often do their theology by experience. And they'll say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I know someone who was saved, but turned their back on Jesus Christ. And Paul would say, no, that so-called Christian never had salvation to begin with. That's what Jesus taught in Luke 8, 13. He teaches that some people have the kind of seed that falls in the kind of heart that doesn't really take. There's an initial response. There appears to be some life. There's some joy in the package. They even believe for a while up here, but not in the human heart. And so Jesus says, in time of testing and tribulation and temptation, they end up falling away. Now, certainly a true child of God can backslide. A true Christian can do some things that they wish they had not done. But the difference between them and a lost person is sin is that they are ultimately miserable. Not initially. There's pleasure in sin for a season. If it were not pleasurable, it would not be tempting. But the true child of God cannot live in sin and be happy. He is miserable. Not to mention if he is truly a child of God, he is inviting the discipline of God on his life. You say, well, is it possible for a Christian to deny the Lord? Well, some of the disciples did, at least temporarily. And some of the issues that they dealt with in the early church and rebaptism are not the kind of issues we deal with. They're dealing with saints whose lives were threatened and they denied Christ and then they came back into the church and said, I didn't really mean it. The church in Africa dealt with this two decades ago when Idi Amin was in power. And he would go in with his men and their machine guns into congregations and ask men to deny Jesus as Lord. And one of my missionary friends that I met as a new Christian who served there, he said he saw a whole congregation of saints floating down the river because they wouldn't deny Jesus as Lord. But people can certainly do things temporarily. But understand... We are so depraved in our sin. It began with God Almighty, not with you. We had a dog once named Jenny. My daughter, Grace Anna, named it after her friend. I think she thought she was complimenting her, but I think in hindsight, she probably thought differently. Uh, This was an outdoor dog. It needed to stay outside. Uh, we weren't being cruel, but you know, you give this dog a bath. We'd give her a bath every time you'd go to pet her. And when you pet her, your hand came up dirty. We said, oh, we better do something. Now we weren't being negligent. You just have to understand this dog. It was her responsibility to keep her clean. But I remember one day cleaning that dog. I mean, we had that dog beautiful. 
Within five minutes, that dog was down in the marsh rolling in the mud. That dog preferred the smell of marsh. I mean, that dog was totally depraved, I'm telling you. That, I'm so glad the Lord took her home to be with Jesus. Reminds me, one night I was out in a home sharing the gospel, and I thought, what is that noise? I said, what's that noise? They said, that's Wilbur. I said, who's Wilbur? Come here, Wilbur. And Wilbur, this pig, literally came right down and jumped up on the couch right next to me. 350-pound Vietnamese pot belly pig. I said, am I okay here? You're okay. That's Wilbur's side of the couch. I said, okay. And I shared the gospel, and the, the pig family, that's how they came to Christ that night. And, but I remember the pig family back then, it was before we had a church building, and we would have church picnics over at the Naval Hospital. And there was a little pavilion over there. It was small. I don't know. It was about 10 by 20 at the most. And we'd put all the food under there. Well, one day, I mean, we we're having a picnic and the storm came in and the water came down and it was lightning and all of us were huddled. The fellowship was close there under that little pavilion. And uh, Mr. Pig's daughter, I can't remember their name, she was all upset because when they would come to these picnics, they would bring their pig on a leash and the pig got away. And uh, the dad said, don't worry about it, honey, it's going to be okay. And sure enough, when the rainstorm was all over, there was the pig sitting under the swing set in a puddle of mud. Now, I have a lot of stories I could tell you. I, I remember one time, Jerry Stokes and I, we, we went out sharing on a Thursday night. We just didn't know it was Halloween. We got there, it was Halloween. And we went to this one house, and there was a guy who, you know how some people play the part of Halloween, you know, they, they dress up really weird and stuff, and, you know, they meet the kids when they come to the door. We, we come to the door, and this guy who we're supposed to have a meeting with, he's got this boa constrictor around his body. I mean, this thing is like this big, about six inches in diameter, and we go in, and we sit down, and I'm thinking to myself, this thing's crawling over my back and over my lap and all around me. And I said, Lord, I know there's some people who don't believe in the full canon of Scripture, but I know there's a verse there somewhere in Mark that we can claim. And anyway, uh, Jerry decides that uh, I guess he doesn't want to sit in the couch, so he goes and he, uh, he gives the kids candy as they come to the door so I can share the gospel. Well, Snake Man comes to Christ that night. And every time I would see him in the choir... I think of that night when, when this Marine gave his life to Jesus Christ. But listen, this is what Peter said. Don't miss this. When a person is truly saved, they will not deny Christ because their nature is fundamentally changed. In 2 Peter, he deals with false teachers who come into the church. People whom he says were bought with by the blood of Jesus. Because the redemption is not particular, it's unlimited in scope. But people who look Christian, who smell Christian, who walk Christian, but then they end up denying the Lord Jesus. And he tells us why in 2 Peter 2.22. He says, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. There are people who say they are saved, but they are no different than a pig. You can clean the pig up, but it will always go back to the mud. It's no different from a dog. You know, a dog will throw up and walk away from the scene of the crime because they got something uncomfortable in their stomach. And they'll come back and say, mm, hot meal, chop suey, mm, and they'd eat. You say, that's disgusting. That's exactly what God wants you to feel. The Holy Spirit's disgust. It's happened to them 
according to the true proverb. They're like a dog who's cleaned up on the inside, but they remain a dog. It's just short-lived. They're like a sow that's cleaned up on the outside, but because they are not fundamentally changed, they never become a sheep. God never calls his people pigs and dogs. He calls us sheep. Why? Because as Peter says, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have a new set of appetites. And so John, in describing these people who renounced Christ, will say, they went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have persevered. They would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not on us, of us. Please understand, a true child of God can never, ever lose their salvation. Now, let's apply the text before we leave. Number one, what do I learn from this passage of Scripture? First, I'm reminded that the blessings today are a guarantee of the blessings to follow. The blessings today are a guarantee of the blessings to follow. We just read, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, will He not also freely give us all things? Now, I probably needed to spend more time on it than I did, but let me just say that that verse has absolutely nothing to do with what the Kenneth Copelands, the Joe Olsteins, and the Joyce Myers use this verse to say. God is not promising to make you rich. This is not your best life now unless you're an unbeliever and you go to hell, then it might be your best life. But the all things that the apostle is referring to are in the context of the spiritual blessings of God Almighty. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't meet our spiritual needs and our physical needs. But sometimes... God knows that our greatest need is to be able to say what the Apostle Paul said when he said, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Sell that one, Joel. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There, the, the use of all things is a use that some of us may not want. But in this context, as we've already seen Peter say, God has given us all things as it relates to godliness and the living a holy life. And in this context, Paul is talking about the spiritual blessings all the way from our justification through our sanctification on up into our glorification. And that's what the context is dealing with. I already told you about Peter Dynecke who, who uh, had a ticket, but he didn't know what was included in the price of the ticket. Don't miss the context. In 16 to 18 here, he talks about the spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And because we are, in verse 23, he says, the adoption that God complete started, he's going to complete it, the redemption of our body. And he's going to pull off all these things in the link of this chain. It's a marvelous, wonderful promise. And so Paul will say, listen, you suffer with him, you can know for certain that there's greater future blessings you'll reign with him. You have the Holy Spirit today as a pledge, as a down payment. That is only a foretaste of what is yet to come. So God reminds me that the current blessings is a guarantee of the future blessings. Secondly, I learned from this text, we above all people should be grateful. We should be a grateful people. Let's suppose that you had a son, an obedient son, a son whom you loved, and you had a servant who stole from you, who rebelled against you, who dishonored you, who lied about you, who committed a crime worthy of death, 
and you and your son have a discussion and you say, son, I love you, but I have chosen to love this servant so much that I was wondering if you would die for him. And the son and the father come to agreement and they do precisely that. Let me ask you, are you telling me that that servant would then be ungrateful? That he would be characterized by ingratitude? You say, I certainly hope not. And yet that is so often true of us as Christians. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. It's a forget-me-not. We, like Paul, need to carry the death of Christ around in our body that we never, ever, ever forget. And we, of all people, should not be grumblers, as 1 Corinthians 10 illustrates, telling us not to do that, but our hearts should be filled with gratitude. Now, you may be here today and you've never trusted Christ and you don't even feel like you have a ticket. You don't even feel like you're on the ship, much less at the banquet table. Well, I want to tell you, you can come to the banquet table. In fact, there's coming a day when we will be at a banquet table. And it's hard for me to conceive, but the Bible says Jesus himself will serve us. Talk about grace. But if you will respond to him today, he will forgive all of your sin. He will not only forgive your sin, he will credit to your person the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will send the Holy Spirit to come live in you who will be your helper to live a godly life. And he's just a foretaste, a pledge of what is yet out there in the future. But understand, there is no neutrality here. You can't say, well, I'm almost there, but I'm not going to make a decision. Not to make a decision is to have made a decision. Jesus said, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. If you're not for me, you are against me. Please understand, if you don't hear anything else out of this sermon today, if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, if you ignore Jesus Christ or you reject Jesus Christ, if God did not spare his son, neither will he spare you. And you will not meet God in his compassion and in his love, but you will meet God Almighty in his eternal wrath. So you have to decide. Now, Holy Father, thank you for the refreshment of this passage. There's so much more here. Prepare our hearts even for the next Lord's Day and give me opportunity to share it. I pray today for someone here who does not have the assurance of salvation because they think there's something they need to do, something they need to improve, when in reality your word says they need to come as bankrupt sinners, trusting in the sufficiency of Christ alone to save them and to change them. Help someone in simple childlike faith, knowing that you cannot lie. You who promise that whoever will call in the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. I pray, God, that you would begin to work in the hearts of your people a passionate love for Jesus Christ. He who gave everything deserves everything. May that be true in this week that is in front of us. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.
To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM41, entitled More Than Conquerors, Part 1. Tomorrow we'll begin Part 2 of More Than Conquerors. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.